You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host from New York City, Ankit Panda, senior editor at The Diplomat. And I'm joined today by Shannon Tiazzi, The Diplomat's editor-in-chief and resident China hand. How's it going today, Shannon? Thanks for joining me. It's always good to be here, Ankit. Absolutely, Shannon. Uh, So we had you on a few episodes ago to talk about U.S.-China relations in the era of Donald Trump. That was a pretty different time, actually. Um, This was before Trump and Xi had finally carried out their first phone call since Trump's inauguration. We I think we'd both commented on how things seemed a little quiet and uneasy uh, in the first days uh, and actually the first weeks of the Trump presidency. Obviously, we had the Chinese New Year break in China, which slowed down their foreign policy uh, processes quite a bit. Um, but yeah, a lot has happened uh, since then. And, you know, I'm hoping that we can talk about some of these things today, including U.S. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson's recent trip um, and also just looking ahead to future developments in U.S. China ties, including um, the as yet officially unconfirmed but strongly rumored um, Mar-a-Lago summit between Chinese President Xi Jinping and Donald Trump. So, Shannon, I guess the place I, I want to start is... Um, you know, we also had you on during the presidential transition, and I think you and I and a lot of Asia watchers in general expected U.S.-China ties to take a pretty sharp downward turn under the Trump presidency, um, not least for the rhetoric that Trump displayed on the campaign trail, but also some of his appointments. You know, he's been appointing several um, people in the realm of trade, like Peter Navarro, the head of his National Trade Council, Robert Lighthizer, his U.S. trade representative, um, you know, people who have been very critical of Chinese trade practices and protectionism and promised essentially uh, a, a trade war with China. Um, but uh, and, you know, Trump's also been equally critical of China for not doing enough on the North Korea point. He's uh, tweeted about their island building in the South China Sea angrily as well. Um, but overall, you know, we haven't really seen that sort of uh, strong change in U.S.-China ties. Does that does that surprise you on a level? Um, it does. I mean, considering the strong language, especially on trade issues, that was levied at China during the campaign and even after the election, but before the presidential transition. Um, I will admit I expected things to go a lot worse in the early days. Um, But I I think it's still early. um, And there are a lot of reports coming out now about moves that the Trump administration is either considering or has already decided to do, again, according to unconfirmed uh, media reports, that will seriously strain U.S.-China relations. Um, On the economic front, uh, reports indicate that the Trump administration is looking to push China very hard on um, the automobile industry. Uh, That's a place where a lot of U.S. companies feel that they uh, have been unfairly restricted from entering the Chinese market. And apparently that's a a place where the Trump administration is going to push hard. At the same time, since Tillerson returned to the U.S., uh, we have seen reports that the Trump administration is about to at least seriously consider implementing something the Obama administration Um, never dared to do, which is secondary sanctions. Uh, Mm -hmm. So essentially, instead of you're already targeting these North Korean financial institutions, right? Um, But you'll expand it and you'll target the Chinese financial institutions that do business with North Korean companies. Um, That's something that China has very strongly spoken out against before um, when such sanctions were implemented on China um, vis-a-vis Iran's nuclear program. Uh, and 
that would be very damaging to the relationship, which is why the Obama administration never actually pulled the trigger on it. Right. Um, and now, according to, again, these are all unconfirmed media reports, um, but it makes sense from Tillerson's tough, tough talk about North Korea during his Asia tour. Uh, this is something that the Trump administration is leaning toward. Right. And then, of course, you have reports of a major arms sale to Taiwan um, coming out, which obviously Taiwan is always a very touchy issue. But I think especially uh, with Trump, because he has sort of flip flopped on this issue of whether or not the U.S. respects the one China policy. So he he did during the conversation he had with Xi Jinping recommit the United States to the one China policy. But how sincerely he meant that, I think, is going to be a question in Chinese minds. And a massive arms sale to Taiwan uh, could definitely jeopardize the relationship. Right, right. Um, I think all three of those are absolutely the right place to look right now, uh, looking forward. Uh, you know, on the issue of secondary sanctions, um, it's interesting. It, you know, last year we did see the uh, effectively the secondary sanctions against a Dandong Hongxiang, the the Chinese company that um, both China and the United States, uh, you know, clamped down on for doing business with North Korea on a level. But obviously, you know, um, broader formal secondary sanctions of the type that Iran faced um, would certainly strain this relationship quite a bit. Uh, you know, you brought up Tillerson's trip, which is actually where I wanted to go next, uh, since that's you know one of the few high-level data points we have of um, U.S.-China interactions. Um, so Tillerson in Beijing met with uh, a state councillor, Yang Jiechi, uh, Wang Yi, the foreign minister, Xi Jinping, and um, and also uh, Li Keqiang. And, you know, there was the overall review of Tillerson's trip, I think, um, from most of the Asia watchers I follow was mixed to negative. Um, I think few people saw it as a very positive show of um, both, you know, the Secretary of State's acumen as the United States top diplomat, but also just in terms of, um, you know, the kinds of foreign policy priorities that this administration would pursue. But I think the first thing with Tillerson's trip is that it wasn't really a normal first trip for a Secretary of State to Asia in the sense that it wasn't really, you know, a meet and greet here, you know, we're going to reaffirm U.S. interests, um, uh, reassure our allies. It wasn't really that kind of trip. It was sort of a mini, uh, you know, crisis tour around the North Korea issue in both um, Seoul and Tokyo, um, but also in Beijing to an extent. What I wanted to get your thoughts on, though, Shannon, is, um, you know, there was a lot of talk about Tillerson's language before his meeting with Wang Yi. Um, he uh, specifically used a particular set of Chinese phrases that, um, you know, you and I know carry a particular diplomatic weight. And, you know, a lot of people outside of the realm of the Asia-watching community didn't really get the big deal. It's like, you know, so Tillerson said that he wanted a relationship with China based on mutual respect, win-win cooperation, and non-conflict. Um, but, you know, that's interesting. And uh, it's interesting not only because, you know, it kind of gives it away, you know, gives away the game a bit to Xi Jinping's... Um, you know, new type or a new model of great power major country relations concept where China essentially wants the United States to acknowledge that China's core interests will be respected. But on a level, you know, if you're a Chinese, um, if you're a Chinese policymaker and you're looking at this, I mean, it's it's really surprising. I mean, you you have this administration come into office openly questioning the one China policy, uh, towing a very you know, tough line, promising to about, you know, label China a currency manipulator. And then all of a sudden you have the Secretary of State smiling and talking about win-win cooperation and a mutual respect in Beijing. So, you know, I mean, what do we make of this? Um, this was very interesting. Uh, and as you said, this is kind of a very 
China's especially, but East Asian expert wonkish sort of thing to pick up on this language because it sounds very anodyne, right? You know, of course we want a relationship that, you know, has no confrontation, no conflict, mutual respect, win-win solutions has always been a favorite phrase of China's. Um, but what's telling is that the Obama administration very pointedly distanced itself from this phrasing uh, because this has is the definition of the concept you mentioned before, um, which is new type great power relations or new model major country relationship, depending on how you're translating it from the Chinese. Um, what's really interesting to me is that after, you know, eight years of the Obama administration refusing to play ball with this phrase, the Chinese had kind of given up on it. Uh, they had stopped trotting it out in every media report about high-level meetings between the U.S. and China. Um, even a few years ago, uh, around the Ukraine crisis, when China-Russia relationships started going really well, they kind of shifted focus. Uh, you know, this concept was originally created with the U.S. and China in mind, um, but then China started saying, actually, it's our relationship with Russia that really embodies the concept of new type great power relations. So the, the Chinese themselves, I think, were, were caught off guard by the willingness of the Trump administration to embrace this concept. I think a lot of people in Beijing had thought, okay, this clearly didn't work. We're just going to kind of quietly resign it to the dustbin of history. Um, and the importance that China ascribed to it, you can tell from this avalanche of uh, media reports after Tillerson's talk, all of the headlines were, you know, U.S.-China embrace non-confrontation, no conflict, mutual respect. Um, so this is very important to the Chinese. The question is, what was the calculation behind doing this, right? Um, and this is the perennial question we are always having with regards to everything the Trump administration does, mm -hmm. because on the one hand, you have you know Tillerson with almost no diplomatic experience. Um, the State Department is very understaffed right now with a lot of key positions still unfilled. So there's uncertainty over whether he really understood the deep and loaded meaning of this phrase, uh, or if this is something that was kind of floated and they said, yeah, sure, it sounds good. Yeah, um, I have a theory actually here. I mean, so look, uh, you know, obviously, as you as you note, you know, it's not an accident that Tillerson used these words. I mean, it's obviously, you know, he had staff prepare these remarks that he then delivered. The inclusion of these words was very deliberate. You know, my theory is that uh, so, you know, after Tillerson's confirmation hearing, um, he he filled out this long Q&A. I think he sent it to Be uh, Senator Ben Cardin. Um, and, you know, this was after his um, worrying comments about the South China Sea when he said that we would be denying access to islands and everybody was um, you know, very worried about that. So I wanted to actually read this Q&A that he did. Um, and in that, he talks quite a bit about U.S.-China relations. You know, he reaffirms the three communiques. And obviously, um, these terms appear in the Shanghai uh, communique. Um, and, you know, obviously, China has led, you know, one thing has led to another over the years. And since uh, Xi Jinping has come in, uh, you know, terms like mutual respect, um, non-conflict have, you know, taken on a new meaning in in the framework of this, um, you know, a new type, new um, new model of great power relations concept. Um, so I think, you know, Tillerson was probably, or Tillerson's staff were probably intending to just reaffirm the basis of the U.S.-China relationship around the language that originally appeared in the Shanghai communique without, you know, realizing that this also signaled um, potentially some support for this concept. But, you know, I, I, I do kind of defer with some of the critics that saw this as a 
a terrible failure of U.S. diplomacy. I mean, you know, Susan Rice, even Obama himself had, um, you know, mentioned these terms. I think the, uh, you know, they stopped really mentioning it in early 2014, uh, late 2013. Um, and, you know, like Tillerson doing this in Beijing, I don't think is going to really override what China expects out of the Trump administration more broadly. Um, just because, you know, as we just discussed, there's all this room still for for conflict, for um, a lack of mutual respect, so to speak. Um, so, you know, I think we'll I think we'll see what happens going forward. But it was certainly an interesting moment in Beijing. Uh, did you want to add anything more on this point? Yeah, I think that's a good point to remind listeners that, you know, these terms have kind of come to embody the new type of great power relations, but that's not where they originated. Um, you know, they have a longer history. And if you do look closely at what Tillerson said, he he didn't promise that in the future, our relationship will be modeled on these concepts. He was talking about the past. He was saying over the past 40 years of the U.S.-China relationship, this has been what our relationship was like, um, which does suggest, as you were saying, that he's harkening back to the Shanghai communique and um, other previous joint U.S.-China statements. Uh, and one other key point is that he did not promise mutual respect for each other's core interests. Mm -hmm. And that's really the part of the phrase that put off um, many U.S. observers, and I'm assuming is was the sticking point for the Obama administration as well, is that if you embrace new type great power relations, you are implicitly promising to respect China's core interests, which definitely include you know, Tibet, Taiwan, and Xinjiang being inalienable parts of China. Um, but also, the Chinese have been sort of unofficially floating the idea of the South China Sea being included as a core interest as well. So that's obviously not something the U.S. wants to commit to. Respecting, you know, China's interests in the South China Sea could be interpreted as we agree with all your territorial claims and all the actions you've been taking. Um, so the fact that he left that out, I think that removes the most objectionable part of the Chinese formulation from those remarks. So then the question becomes, was he aware of how happy this should make people in Beijing? And is this sort of a negotiating tactic, right? Like mm -hmm. you give the Chinese something, you know, give them face. Um, everyone always talks about how much the Chinese love face, but showing some respect to terms they have used that they haven't been able to get U.S. high-ranking officials to accept in the past, and then you're hoping in return they will be willing to budge on some other issue, whether it's trade or North Korea or what have you. Um, so yeah, I think to really understand the impact of this, we're going to have to see what the next move is in U.S.-China relations. Mm -hmm. And you know, a lot of commentators have been talking about how Tillerson's role within the, the Trump administration still remains really uncertain. The State Department's been gutted. We don't really see senior staff at the State Department. Uh, you know, Daniel Russell, former East Asian Pacific um, Assistant Secretary, hasn't been uh, his post hasn't been occupied yet. Um, it's still Susan Thornton. So, you know, I mean, Tillerson could also just be playing, you know, a, the good cop, so to speak, in uh, mm -hmm. the Trump administration's broader approach towards U.S.-China relations. Um, but, you know, let's move on, talk about the this upcoming, supposed upcoming Mar-a-Lago summit, uh, which seems, I mean, I know that China doesn't like to announce its meetings until very close to the actual date, but it seems like it's still on. 
Um, what do you make of this? I mean, is this going to be essentially a reboot of kind of the approach that Obama and she first enjoyed, you know, at Sunnylands when they, you know, when she kind of introduced all of this stuff? And is this going to be really, you know, meeting man to man, kind of setting out the terms for this relationship over the next four years? Or, you know, will will both sides be looking to really get down to brass tacks and start talking about the difficult topics like trade? China's been showing some signs that trade is now on the agenda for quote-unquote, friendly consultations with the United States. Um, but, you know, is Mar-a-Lago the place where that's going to happen? Or is this going to be a, a you know, f- a 40, 50,000-foot meeting about the U.S.-China relationship more broadly? Um, I, I don't think this is going to be the place where they really get down to business on concrete issues. Uh, what we've seen from Trump's previous meetings with world leaders, uh, including you know, for diplomat readers, probably the most interest is Shinzo Abe, the Japanese prime minister, is these are kind of get-to-know-you meetings. Um, start forming the basis of a personal relationship, um, play some golf. Of course, Xi Jinping doesn't play golf, so they'll have to find some other leisure activity to fill their times. Um, but there's not a lot of serious policy discussion. And even with, you know, the U.S.-Japan relationship, where there's obviously a lot less friction they kind of booted the trade discussions down, you know, kicked that can down the road and said, you know, Vice President Pence and um, Taro Aso are going to be handling those dialogues later. So that's kind of my expectation broadly for the Trump-Xi summit, you know, again, assuming that it does actually occur, although we have no reason to doubt that at this point, um, is you will see them kind of just spending time together, um, kind of a redux of the Sunnyland summit that Barack Obama had with Xi Jinping back in 2013. You know, very informal, designed to showcase a personal relationship, even if one really isn't there, which turned out to be the case with Obama and Xi. And then they'll probably come up with um, some future dialogue uh, tracks that they'll be using. Because uh, at this point, we still don't know, are they going to carry on the strategic and ec- economic dialogue from the Obama administration? Is there going to be some new sort of dialogue platform where these sorts of nitty gritty negotiations take place? Um, mm-hmm. We might see some sort of announcement on that. So rather than an announcement about any breakthroughs, I think the best we can hope for is an announcement about talks that might lead to breakthroughs later on. Right. Talks about talks. No, I think I yeah. uh, I share that assessment with you entirely. One of the things I worried about, though, is, um, you know, North Korea is I think mm-hmm. I think Trump is personally very interested in the North Korean problem. Um, you know, during the transition, we saw that even though he had no interest in intelligence briefings, the first ever intelligence briefing he requested was on North Korea. And look, the North Koreans themselves have shown a remarkable degree of savvy to testing during, um, you know, certain moments in the Trump administration. I mean, obviously, Abe's time in Mar-a-Lago was rudely interrupted by a North Korean missile launch. Uh, Tillerson, um, when he was in Asia, the North Koreans tested their new high-thrust rocket engine. And just today, we saw reports that the U.S. has already, you know, positioned its WC-135 Constant Phoenix, the the monitoring aircraft that pick up data after nuclear tests, expecting uh, another test imminently. And um, April 15th is obviously, you know, Kim Il-sung's birthday. North Korea really likes that date to kind of show off new tech. So basically, the point I'm making is that uh, I think, um, you know, the North Koreans are going to continue showing off their hardware. 
and they're going to put themselves on the agenda and put themselves at the top of the agenda, hopefully. And, you know, that I think could be really interesting um, if we see another uh, missile launch or nuclear test or, uh, you know, even the first ever ICBM launch when uh, Trump and Xi meet uh, or, you know, right before their meeting. That could really make things interesting. I mean, I think Trump genuinely believes that the way to solve the North Korean problem is for China to do more. Um, and it could be interesting if that kind of overshadows their talk since we we know that, you know, he has sort of an unfiltered personal style diplomatically to put it uh to put it lightly. But um, you know, I wonder I wonder what could happen if uh if North Korea does do something dramatic in the meantime. I guess um apart from the North Korea issue, um I guess any uh any closing thoughts for our listeners on what to look forward to here with uh US China ties more broadly. We still haven't seen I mean, you know, I think you and I both share a degree of surprise about frankly, how well things have gone until now, at least, you know, nothing has fallen apart or broken too dramatically. Um, but, um, you know, apart from what you've already said, anything else you want to add? Um, I do think that North Korea is really going to be the issue that defines U.S.-China relations under the Trump administration, because you've basically seen, I mean, as Tillerson put it quite directly on his trip to Asia, strategic patience, the Obama administration's policy is dead. Um, The Trump administration is determined to craft a new policy. And realistically speaking, unless that policy is we're going to, you know, enter into unconditional dialogue with North Korea, pretty much any of the other options are going to be upsetting to China. Uh, whether you're talking about you know, secondary sanctions or even all the way up to a preemptive strike, um, which I, I don't think is being seriously considered, but that option is on the table, as, again, as Tillerson made clear. So the question is going to be, you know, what does Beijing do in response? Um, And it is an incredibly difficult diplomatic problem to try to forge consensus with China on an approach to North Korea, particularly when you consider that the U.S. is also having to coordinate its North Korea policy with South Korea and with Japan. And then you throw China into that mix and it becomes almost impossible to get everybody on the same page and in agreement about what's going on. Um, So this is... I mean, there's a reason that this problem has dragged on now for over 20 years. <laughs> yeah, I, know, it's, I, I agree. It's incredibly I think, hard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, even outside just the U.S.-China relationship, I think North Korea might just come to be the defining um, foreign policy problem of the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this all this focus on the Islamic State terrorism, um, I think, ultimately will be overshadowed by the North Korean threat. It's just getting to a point where, um, you know, it's already past the point of no return, in my view. Um, but uh, depending on the action that the Trump administration chooses, uh, this could really come to um, define or haunt his presidency. Right. Um, what I would add is just um, for everyone who thinks that China has ultimate influence and control over North Korea, watch to see what North Korea does during the Trump-Xi summit, um, because China will be practically begging them, threatening them, however, you know, they can to please don't do anything to mess this summit up for us. But we saw while Tillerson was in China just before he went in to meet with Xi Jinping, North Korea announced, hey, we just tested a new missile engine. And, you know, um, ultimately, I think North Korea has figured out there is a very hard limit on how far China is willing to push them even to punish them for things that China is very upset about for right. its own reasons, putting aside 
the U.S. and South Korea's reasons. Um, and they they have showed a very obnoxious, I'm sure, for the Chinese ability to kind of play that against Beijing. Um, you know, it's kind of like the child who realizes its parent isn't actually going to ever spank it. Right. So uh, what are you going to do? <laughs> no, totally. Um, and, you know, I mean, they've gone further. I mean, during the Hangzhou G20 meeting, which was China's, you know, it was a major moment for China. And they also uh, fired a four missile salvo then and showed off the new extended range Scud missile. Um, so I think the North Koreans are definitely, uh, you know, they're not going to hold back if they if they need to get themselves on the agenda. They'll make it happen. They'll find a way. Yeah. Um, all right, Shannon. Um, I think we'll end it there for now. But uh, certainly, you know, once this summit happens, I, I hope we can have you back on to um, offer your review of um, of the first, uh, you know, the most anticipated leaders meeting this year, possibly. Or, or yep. maybe or maybe Trump Putin comes close. But uh, Trump Xi, I think, will be pretty good. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Um, so to our listeners, uh, thanks for listening to the podcast as always. And if you haven't yet subscribed on iTunes, please do so so you can catch up uh, with anything else we release. And please also do leave us a review if you like the show. And if you want something addressed on this podcast that you haven't heard yet, just reach out to me via email or on social media. And I'd be happy to consider adding it to the agenda. Thanks for listening.